Hello and welcome to another episode of Additive Insight, live from day two on the teach floor here at TCT Show 2019. I'm Head of Content Daniel O'Connor and today I am joined by... Sandra Chuckett, Assistant Editor, and Laura Griffith, Deputy Group Editor. I like, Dan, that you had to look at your notes to remember your job title then. That was a... It changes though, doesn't it, right, Laura? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, Sandra is the newest member of the TCT editorial team. Yep. Your expertise is in languages, as we've just discovered, over engineering. Yes, it is. Come on, just run through those languages that you can speak again <laughs> to show off. German, English, French, Swedish. I'm going to stick with that. All oh, right, okay, yeah. Um, yesterday, we kind of focused a bit more on the past of uh, 3D printing, and today we want to look at the present. Uh, one gent who was very much involved in the past, but still has his finger in, on the pulse, is uh, Dr. Phil Reeves. Uh, with over a quarter of a century in working with the technologies, Phil's point of view has become one of the most sought after in the industry. Phil formerly ran the Economist, which was acquired by Stratasys, mm -hmm. uh, but you have since left and you are out on your own again. Oh, yes. With Reeves Insight Limited. <laughs> uh, today, I want to kind of talk about misconceptions uh, and challenging those misconceptions. Uh, a quick scan on the BBC website uh, will show you about somebody that got arrested for 3D printed guns, uh, a 3D printer that prints chocolate, uh, and houses. Now, as I've discussed with these guys, houses is the thing I particularly have a bee in the bonnet for. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason I have such a bee in the bonnet for it is because they always talk about a house built in 24 hours, but that's just the bricks and mortar print in 24 hours. They don't talk about the windows, the wiring, the plumbing, which is the things that turns out they take quite a long time to do the houses. What are the things that, uh, what are the most popular misconceptions that you hate most, Phil? Yeah, I, I think my big gripe is the belief that if you buy a printer and educate people to use it, you can bring a product to market almost instantly. And, and actually people ignore how long it takes to validate and certify most of the products they're going to make with an additive manufacturing system. Because the reality is these machines are relatively high value technologies that make low-value products. And, and those products tend to be of an exceptionally high value because they're critical. And they sit in critical supply chains like aero and auto and medical. Um, and those supply chains are regulated, not, not by us, but by the CAA and the FAA. Uh, and actually, it takes an awfully long time to get from having a 3D printer in a lab to a factory making products. And I think there's just this perception that, oh, it's, it's really easy. It just takes a couple of, couple of months and we're there. It doesn't, it takes years, if not decades. And I think people have lost sight of that to some degree, how long it takes to get into a productive, money-making state with a 3D printer. And, and even to, to launch a technology, yesterday I was talking to someone and they were saying that there are quite a few of these companies who are launching with five million pounds worth of investment, but if you want to bring a manufacturing technology to market, it's going to take a hell of a lot more than that. Thinks yeah, put about 20 yeah. apps on that. Thinks, yeah, Scott Crum talked about 50 million minimum. Yeah, 50, million, 50 to 100 million to bring a machine to market in this industry. Yeah. Because you've got to build sales channels on a global basis. Behind that, you've then got to put a support infrastructure, because nobody's going to buy a machine from you unless you can actually support that technology. You need application engineers to help your potential customers get to the point of making a capital investment. You need to bankroll yourself to that point. You know, you, you can't do that with a million pound of VC money. Do you think that there is... Um, you said that we've kind of taken a step back, lost sight of that, um, that there needs to be a bigger process chain. Do you not feel like 
that has been improving over the years. Like obviously, ten years ago we were talking about three D printer does this, but now if someone like TCT Show, we see the materials manufacturers. Mm -hmm. There's a uh, a vibro finisher over there making a noise that will appear on the podcast later on. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that we're improving in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> yeah, I mean we are, and there's there's lots of initiatives going on around the world around standardisation. And I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday about this, and they were saying, well, you know, why are we not making components by 3D printing? And I said, well, you know, within a supply chain, we don't yet have an interoperable way of talking across a supply chain. And if you actually look at where we are today from a standards perspective, we're still arguing about how should we do a tensile test coupon for direct metal laser sintering? Should we make a laser sintered part and then polish it back and make a dog bone? Or should we test it with all the layer lines on it? That's the level of argument we're having at our standards. Now, you've got to consider if, you, if you're trying to then build a supply chain and implement this, we're still a long way away from having a really rapid way of doing things. And, and, and the other thing is, companies, even if they can access data, they still want to validate their own supply chain system or product. So even if your competitors have done it, and they've done all the testing and they share it all with you, you'll still want to do it yourself. So all this data that we have around us, all it does is it validates that we're taking less risk than we thought we were. Do you think that the, uh, obviously we see a lot a bigger growth for metals, for instance, in the Chinese market. Is that because they're a little bit less stringent, perhaps, on qualification and certification, and they just go and do these things? Or is that a misconception that I'm putting out? I'll be honest, yes, there's a growth in the Chinese market for metals machines, but that's on the sales side, not necessarily on the purchasing side. And I haven't seen any credible products made on those metals machines. Now, what you're seeing is a growth in the vendor side. And, and I genuinely have a belief that there is more demand, sorry, there's more supply than demand. You yeah. know, I'd love to add up the capacity of all the machines in the world and then actually divide it by the number of parts being printed. And I would hazard a guess that it's 20 to 30%. There's a huge amount of, of capacity not being used. And I think the Chinese market is kind of exacerbating yeah. that. I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do as TCT is to try and highlight the applications and increase capacity. I mean, Duncan, the CEO, has been around talking to people and realized that capacity is quite low in machines. There are companies who have invested in machines five mm -hmm, years ago mm -hmm. in the middle of the hype, and then they're just not using it, yep. lying it around. What kind of like the companies that you go and see, is there any good examples of people that are using it across uh, prototyping jigs and fixtures and manufacturing, or does everybody just work in these silos? I think no, the, the, the clever thing is, is breaking those silo barriers, because what you'll find is engineers will go and buy these machines from a production point of view, and then not truly realize that actually the prototyping guys, product development, have got a huge skill set, but not necessarily the same technology. And they've probably wanted those technologies and been knocked down every time they've made a business case. So getting product development, prototyping, production engineering, manufacturing to actually collaborate, that seems to be where the clever money is at the moment. But yeah, there are so many companies I've seen who've gone and built a business case to have investment, they've won the money, and then they've brought in consultants like us to say, now what do we use it for? Mm. And it's like, well, I can show you a hundred things you could print, but you don't have the right platform, because you've gone about it the wrong way, which is invest in the technology first, find the application second. And, it, and it's, it's nonsense, but that's unfortunately how it is. And that probably that had a detrimental effect on the market, I think, a few years ago, of people mm -hmm. investing in machines and thinking that oh, it was a waste of time. Mm -hmm. and I think there's a quite a good example from, uh, are they called Additive now? They used to be called Digital Widgets of a, mm -hmm. a company called Basis Lighting in London. Mm -hmm. 
who had invested in a desktop 3D printer and had no use for it, and that was it then for them. 3D printing was rubbish. But it turned out when they had a uh, product engineer from Germany who came in as an intern, said, oh, actually, this louvre that you're printing, you could make that on an SLS machine for 12p a, yep. 12p a pop. Uh, they're only doing small volumes. Do you think there is... Um, with, certainly with SLS, do you think there's an opportunity for people to foresee there being it as a use case for mass manufacture? We've seen Chanel say that they're going to print 1.3 million makeup brushes over the... What are they, Laura? Mascara brushes, sorry. I'm not up on much. You're not big on mascara. Not big on mascara. It might look that's, that's like I am, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you think there is an opportunity there for SLS that's untapped? Or do you think that there's still think barriers in the way? I think there's, there's scalability for all the platforms, but you have to match the technology's capabilities, whatever that application is. There's got to be a reason if, if, if L'Oreal or whoever it is are going to make mascara brushes using SLS, then there must be something about the SLS process that lends itself to that application, whether it's the fact that it's a porous material that actually absorbs the mascara. Is that why SLS works? And FDM doesn't, or MPJ or whatever doesn't work. Um, I'm sure there is a scalable application for, for laser surgery. I mean, I remember years ago looking at, uh, with a client, looking at hearing aids and looking at could we transition away from using resin-based stereography to, to SLS. And we looked at it, and economically it made perfect sense, but the things got clogged up with human earwax because you couldn't seal them. And you didn't have that problem using resins. So, so yeah, the economics didn't work, but technically. So I'm sure there's lots of applications for, for laser-centered parts. Um, the question is how scalable it is from an economic perspective. And does that then come in? Um, does the process chain come in then? Because I went to see Matsura, uh, who were using multi-step fusion machines. Mm -hmm. And uh, just for an open day, they were printing these little key rings. Um, and he said, before they got the dimension processing automated solutions, he wouldn't have been able to do that even mm -hmm. for an example because he couldn't give them out because yeah. they were rubbish quality. So is it all about the ancillary steps either side of it that, to scale up those production processes? Yeah, yeah. Um, over the years when I've done business cases, invariably we've had to invest as much more, the clients have had to invest as much money at both sides of the 3D printer. So in, in the, the downstream digital workflow, shop floor software, data management, even data capture, so if we're talking about personalized products, the cost of putting a channel strategy together to actually get to the customer to get the data from the customer. Um, and then as you say, you've got the shop floor, then you've got the post-processing. And then yeah, you know, post-processing is an expensive thing to do. Then the clever thing is if it's a personalized product, how do I get the right product back to the right customer? So yeah, you have to think across the whole, the whole process chain. To go back to what you were saying before as well about people that bought a machine, and they got fundamentally frustrated with that they needed to buy these processes either side. Do you think there was maybe a case of the OEMs perhaps mis-selling a little bit and saying you buy this machine, you do this, and then oh actually you've got to add a post-process onto that, you've got to add this to the front of that. Yeah, I, at risk of, of <laughs> hanging myself, um, what I've, in the 25 years I've worked in this industry, what I've noticed is that the users are far more intelligent than the vendors, if I can say that. M most, most users have application engineers who are better than the application engineers at the vendors. And, and what that means is it's actually the users in many cases who educate the vendor on the process chain. So all of a sudden you see the vendors actually looking to their users to say, well, what is the best software? What is the best workflow? What is the best post-processing? 
that knowledge doesn't necessarily come from the vendor. And if you go around most of the vendor's own um, you know, internal exhibition floors, um, you very rarely see any of that other ancillary equipment. But actually, that's the thing people want to see. They want to understand end-to-end -end workflow. But as vendors, the vendors tend to focus on their box in the middle. And I think that is it's detrimental to the industry. If we go back four or five years ago, I remember you doing a talk for a TCT conference in Vegas about, uh, and the crux of that talk was the breaking down the Whirlpool washing machine and the parts oh, yeah. that could be printed. Yeah. In that time period, have we moved on? Have the technologies that have appeared like HP's multi-jet fusion or the carbon systems, have they improved or changed the landscape mm. for that? Because basically the analysis was, it wasn't really worth making yeah. any of the parts <laughs> of the printer. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. So yeah, about five or six years ago, we did a project with IBM Research looking at what would happen if 3D printers, robotics and accessible computing all merged together. And we, we looked at some case studies and one was, can you 3D print a washing machine? So I went out and bought a top-of-the-range Bosch washing machine, took it back into our office, took the thing to pieces, laid it out on the floor, and we went through every single component part, and we worked out that we could print 25% of the components, uh, which accounted for 5% of the value, and it would have cost us £17,000. Yeah? Because there was a bit of the door seal we could potentially have done, but it probably wouldn't have lasted. There's some of the electronics... Um, hold, the, the bits that held the electronics, the drawer that you put the fabric condition and so on. Fast forward to now, what's different? We still wouldn't be doing the glass, we still wouldn't be doing the rubber, we might be doing the rubber seal um, using some of the silicon based technologies that are around now. We still wouldn't be doing any of the sheet metal work, quite rightly so. The drum, which actually is plastic in most washing machines now, is probably within the build envelope of some of the voxel jet systems. The plastic bits, yeah. You know, the break-evens would certainly be lower for things like the detergent drawer, what's holding the electronics. The one thing I would say that we never saw five years ago that we do have now are the powder bed metal systems using binders. So, okay, yeah, this one existed five years ago, but, but looking at it now with HP and desktop metal, some of those component parts, then, yeah, you, you conceivably could make in relatively high unit volumes. And it would certainly pull that £17,000 down to... But, but, but it's not the industrial revolution of the digital age. Five years later, we're not printing washing machines. No. I guess that's part of another common myth, though, that people expect you to be able to just 3D print anything and everything. It's more about finding the parts that are actually relevant for 3D printing and the ones that are going to make the most sense cost-wise or whether you can consolidate parts. Do you think that people are getting that understanding a bit more now and not expecting that you can take something like that apart and replace it with 3D printed parts completely? I think some people are. I think what, what you've got to consider is that anyone who sets out to buy a 3D printer in the belief that it will replace an existing manufacturing process because it's faster or cheaper, you're fighting a losing battle from the outset. What you've got to do is sit down and say, where does, where does this technology add value to my enterprise? And it, and it can do that in just one of two ways. You either grow the top line or you grow the bottom line. So you grow the top line by innovating new products that you could never make before, that your competitors can't make, or that are highly functional that people want to buy. So that's your GE jet engine, it's your Stryker orthopedic. Or you look at it and say, I'm going to use this to improve the bottom line. I'm going to make jigs and fixtures, drive out waste, look at the seven wastes in lean and map 3D printing against them. And, and people who think of it in that context are the ones who who are happy with the investment they make. People who go out there and just buy a machine because they believe 
it's better than CNC machining or better than investment casting. They're the ones who, yeah, feel that they've had their fingers burnt by making an investment. Right, right, okay. I'm kind of interested as well, so as Sandra, this has been your first TCT show, and we were talking about these myths and misconceptions before. Are there any that you've kind of seen that, you know, you've come to the show now and seen that, you know, you hear about the things in the news and you see better kind of application examples here? Are there any application examples that you've seen on the show floor that you think that's, you know, a, a really good example of 3D printing that should be brought to the limelight more? Um, I know you looked in a jewellery session yesterday. Yeah, um, that jewellery session I think confirmed for me a bit what Phil was saying about it's, it's often uh, a compliment towards other mm -hmm. methods of manufacturing. So for the jewellery, for example, it's, it's usually used to making moulds. Um, and you can, you can 3D print jewellery as well, but I think it usually doesn't happen. It just not that jewellery comes out of the 3D printer, so it's, it's more a case of finding something where that technology can complement an existing technology and just improve it. Did we go through a stage where, like I think five years ago, when we talk about that CS, we went through a stage of people thinking that uh, we'd have a 3D printer in every home. Mm -hmm. And then we went through a stage of we were going to manufacture everything. But the things that Sandra is pointing out there, that particularly in the jewellery industry, it's understanding that oh, 3D printing can really affect the process before. Mm -hmm. Really cheap. Do you, can you see that now as a... Are we getting good at that? I think we're wising up to it. I, I honestly think as an industry, there was a, a certain element of snobbiness in the last five years. Everybody was obsessed with making products. You know, our, our own government, bless them, funded lots and lots of calls for innovation projects where they wouldn't fund projects where people were using additive for innovative prototyping applications, innovative tooling applications. They'd only fund you if you were looking at making end-use parts. And, and actually, if you look at where the really good use cases are at the moment, it's one step back. It's making jigs and fixtures and tooling. It's, it's back to that lean manufacturing how do I use this technology to just make my business more streamlined? And forget the snobbery of I'm going to try and print my end-use part. Just look at well, where does it fit between product development and manufacture. And, and there's so many applications in a business. But it's getting the right people in the business to understand that. Because the jigs and the fixtures and the tooling, they're not necessarily the guys who will be here. You touched on our, our government then. Um, and two years ago at TCT Show, uh, AMUK launched the mm -hmm. National Strategy for Additive Manufacturing the company, which was kind of largely ignored by the industrial strategy. Uh, I'm hosting a panel session tomorrow in which we discuss what the way forward is. Do you think that the government's decided additive manufacturing is a flash in the pan and we're not interested? Um, I'll be really careful here. Okay. Especially not, since the get ready for Brexit booth yeah, is over there. It's not a flash in the pan, but it's just part of a bigger picture of digitization in manufacturing. It's no different. You know, we've got to stop putting ourselves on a pedestal. Do we really need a national strategy for additive manufacturing? What we need is a national strategy for digital manufacturing. And then within that, we need a national strategy for digital manufacturing across the aerospace supply chain, across the rail supply chain. You know, we're looking at it in the wrong direction across the matrix. It's not, it's not a strategy for additive, it's a strategy for the implementation of additive. And that's largely what we're missing. I think, um, when you talk about the applications that we see here on the show floor, what I'm quite proud of for TCT this year is the central aisle 
we see a lot of these things that are just examples of how additive manufacturing is being used effectively. Now, we did a similar thing called the Innovation Showcase five mm -hmm. years ago, four years ago, and in that we had sunglasses. We had uh, a helmet from a film. Dolls. Dolls, yeah. the, the makey dolls were there. But today out there we see things like uh, a tapping tree for piping, mm -hmm. uh, or um, what else have we got here? An intake plan of assembly that's strong, mm -hmm. heat resistant, and airtight. A tire molding segment from EOS. Yep. Does that show maturity in the industry, or does that show maturity in TCT and our community? Or well, it shows it shows maturity, you know, in the industry. And I always say with, with trade shows like this, the sad thing is the, the state of the art and the cutting edge is not here. Because what happens is you'll find industries come to trade shows, they get very emotive and very very bought into the technology, and then they disappear for five or six years, and then they pop out with something commercialized. So at the moment, that's what's now in the commercial domain. Yep. The really exciting stuff is the stuff that isn't in the commercial domain that will be here in five years' time. And, and that is maybe you know, where everyone is. Well, they're all actually now hunkered down, getting the next generation of products out. You know, it's great seeing the striker guys here. You know, that's really interesting. You know, but that's 15 years ago that started. Yeah. It's interesting. I kind of had the same conversation uh, with GE last week about like it feels like we've been seeing the leap fuel nozzle on presentations now for five years. Mm -hmm. What's the next leap fuel nozzle? And they were saying that, well, five years ago there were a handful of applications and that's the one that came out on top. But now we have hundreds and hundreds of things. Mm -hmm. And they're, as you say, they're all just hunkered down getting through these. Yep. So do you think that maybe that leap fuel nozzle was a bit too ahead of its time almost in terms of we're not seeing anything else that's metal series production like that? I think as a component, it was quite a low risk component. Um, and I'm sure there are other far higher risk components now finding their way, you know, on, onto those aircraft. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we, we're not seeing a whole plethora of new applications. What we're seeing is better applications, different ways of approaching orthopedic implants, spinal implants, different ways of approaching super nickel alloy component parts in engines. Um, One of the companies that are very good at this, like... Um, showcasing what their technology can do is Ultimaker. I think Ultimaker have carved out a real great niche in the, they call it applications discovery. Uh, the jigs and fixtures with VW was a huge story. And BMW were telling me, oh, well, we've been doing that for years. It was like, well, you didn't shout about it. So um, Laura, you've been, and Sandra, you've been to see Ultimaker and seen their new machine. Can you talk a little bit about it? Briefly, yes. So <laughs> cool. the new machine is the S3, which is a smaller version of the S5. Um, I think it's not hugely different in terms of technology, it's just a smaller version. Yeah. Um, they also have the machine yeah. as well that's got the temperature control yeah. chamber. I think they have to be very careful yeah. with what they say. Zortrax have got one as well, haven't they, Laura? Yeah, yeah, so they've got the, so I'm not too sure on the pronunciation of this, but I'm going to say the Engereal. Um, it's a third generation printer, which, um, so the company basically defines third generation as printers that were built from the ground up to process high temp materials okay. like peak and um, so it's all based on that it's um 
it's a closed chamber up to 200 degrees C, so it can obviously process lots of high temp materials, again, like peat materials. Um, so on all the various zones as well in the machine are all um, thermally shielded so that there's no kind of problems with like the things like the nozzles or any sort of components there or the temperature all, all kept to the, the optimum temperature. Um, so yeah, there's, there's those guys over there doing that and they've got some like nice examples on, on the booth as well, so definitely worth um, going to see. They've also got um, a focus on, a real focus on safety with that machine too, which I find, I find quite interesting because it does again show the maturity that you were talking about before. So there's around 16 cents on this machine and this, this isn't a, a massive machine either um, and things like um, a blackout response system that's been added so that if you're doing like um, a, a long print run and say um, say I don't know, there's a power cut or something or something fails it will just stop right at the point where you were printing and then pick up again so there's no failed prints no failed material or anything like that so that's just a really an, another nice um, feature it's also um, a dual print head as well so that's for printing peat material but also printing soluble supports alongside which I believe is also and quite different for that type of machine. And yes, yeah, so there's this new hardware there. And it's it's been nice this year because I do feel like with the with the additive manufacturing industry, we're often quite um, inundated with lots and lots of launches and it's quite hard to, to keep up, but it's been nice to see that um, people are focusing more on smaller features like this and not necessarily just coming out with these brand new massive machines every five minutes and do, do, do you see that at all in the industry Phil that people yeah. are focusing more on gradual developments? Yeah I, I think finally people have realized that yes it's really really easy to build a three-axis extrusion system mm -hmm. um, and, and now I think people have wised up to the fact that yes it's easy to build them and it's easy to pay some money and go to a trade show but it's actually really hard to build a business selling them. And, and, and personally, I'm quite glad. It sounds awful, this. I've been working in this industry for a quarter of a century. I'm glad some of these companies are going out of business because there were too many. There were just too many companies making Me Too technologies. And now they've realized that the only way to survive is to differentiate. And that doesn't mean always being technologically the highest. And, and you know, Ultimaker is a brilliant example of that where Yes, you know, the likes of BMW have been using whoever's machines for years making jigs and fixtures, and those machines would have been 150, €200,000 machines. The reason Ultimaker have got great traction and, and, a, and a lot of belief from everyone in them is that that's a $2,000 machine doing the same thing. And, and I know, know from experience, I, I was working with a company who didn't want the high-end machine with the high level of accuracy. They wanted less accuracy. They just wanted speed. They want a big nozzle to just lay down material. But the industry is going in the opposite direction, which is, no, no, we have to make it more accurate, more repeatable. And it's just differentiation. So if you know what your USP is, just sell to that market. Mm -hmm. But it, it is refreshing. And, and, and I take your point about you know, the Zortrax machine, putting sensors on there, focusing on safety, focusing on usability. It, it's, it's an important factor, because a lot of these machines are still hobbyist Heath Robinson devices um, with really, really poor software interfaces. And yeah, it might only be 400 bucks, but so what? It'll just end up in the back of the, back of the kitchen cupboard with the deep fat fryer. It always amazed me that like, this industry is so technologically advanced in many ways, but in that area, like those hobbyist machines you were saying, occasionally we'd see, oh, it's got Wi-Fi on it now. Like, yeah, it's got Wi-Fi on it now. I've got a <laughs> yeah. smartphone that's like doing all of these things. It was. It seemed like we were always a, almost like, okay, here's a great manufacturing device, but software size, we were always terrible at it. Yep. 
do you see um, do you see that's completely changed now? I don't think people shout about having Wi-Fi or uh, putting a USB stick into a machine anymore. That's kind of gone away. But do you think that that is the case across all manufacturing? No, no, definitely not. I think that you know. The large players in this industry have worked out now what the message is that they have to give to their customers. And it's not about the technology. It's not about the size of the bed, the thickness of the layer, the speed of the laser. That's not what the message is anymore. It's about the capability, the resilience, whether that, customer, whether that vendor will be with you on the five-year journey to get to a productive state. You know, that's what people are now selling. I think some of the, some of the, the, the newer vendors are still focusing on the, you know, and you see it on the spec sheet. It always starts with what's the build envelope. Then the second thing is what's the layer thickness. Then the third thing is does it have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth? Has it got a USB port? And and, and you, we've got to yeah, we've got to get past that. We've got to sell. And it's an awful marketing cliche, but you know, don't don't bring me bring me features, bring me benefits. Well, actually, that's what vendors need to do. Find the benefits, ignore the features, sell the benefit of what your technology does. And when we go to this industry 4.0 and these smart, smart factories and things, the CNC tools and things, they're all fitting mm. into it and they don't know, but it seems weird that additive manufacturing at times has almost been these standalone machines that don't fit in it with any of these processes. Do you think that that's been improved? Do you think automation and things of those machines have been approved, improved? I think we still very, like very slightly, and I, I would generally say most vendors are going in completely the wrong direction with their strategies. They're becoming more insular, wanting to control more of the value chain, wanting to be the software vendor, the hardware partner, the material. And it's the inverse of Industry 4.0. You know, most of these machines are not designed to be an integral part of a shop floor because the vendors are fearful that that then relinquishes control of the material supply chain, of the software, of the pre-processing, post-processing. Um, and the reality is, yeah, these are clever technologies, but they're not rocket science. And, and any good CNC machine vendor in the world could build most of these machines. What locks them out is IP. And we know this from what's happened with, with stereolithography, FDM, and to a lesser degree, laser sintering. Once the IP lapses, the floodgates will open, and you're going to see every large CNC company in the world, an integration company, making these technologies. And, and if the vendors are not open to that and being part of it, they will just get squeezed out. Talking about open as well, one of the things you mentioned there was about keeping, keeping control of the materials. And everybody will tell you that they, uh, everybody that's coming into the industry will say, we need the specific part printed in this material. Do you think it's a really strange concept that they would be kept locked out of a technology because their material is not available mm -hmm. and because it's a closed down system? I think we've kind of seen the end of that yet. We're seeing the end of it. I think that the, as we've transitioned from prototyping to more volume manufacturing, the realization from the vendors that customers want to buy their materials from a materials vendor, one that they probably already have a contract with, they already have a service level agreement with them. The other thing is they also want to have resilience in the supply chain. And having a single source of a raw material for a critical part is nobody's ever going to implement an application of additive if they can only ever source their material from one place. It's commercial suicide. So you're always going to look to at least having two sources of raw material, which therefore means you have to have an open architecture. But, but, the, but the problem is the balance sheet of most of the vendors is largely propped up from materials revenue. 
And, and the worry is, if it's wholly propped up by machine sales, they're going to have to sell an awful lot more machines. And there's a bit of a catch-22, which is, how do we sell more machines? Well, we need to get more adoption. Adoption's being stifled because of the material supply chain being closed. So it's, you know... Chicken and egg. Chicken and egg. And maybe that's where you need a government strategy or some form of incentive or some form of taxation, something to try and oil the wheels of... When I go back to... I know that we're on the present, but if we go back to the past and when you were at the universities, what was different about the technology then? And was it more exciting then almost than is now? So what kind of machines were you running? What kind of projects were you doing? Was it only prototyping or were you messing around with tools, jigs and fixtures? The first, I built my first machine in 1994 um, and it was an extrusion system for extruding investment casting wax for making patterns for casting. Um, and yeah, that, that kind of seemed like a sensible thing because you're getting rid of tooling and tooling's expensive. Um, from then, stereolithography, so the really early SLA 250, 250, 40, um, that was great. It was such good fun. You know, these are machines that run on DOS. So hands up, who remembers DOS? Last year, from a window. Chat manager. Yeah, so, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so a machine that runs DOS, it was brilliant. You just write a bit of code and get it to stop halfway through a build. Open the door, drop some uh, electronics into the resin vat, close the door, restart it, and, and print electronics in 1980, whenever, you know. And, and, and it was exciting. And then people would come up with ideas of what to do. Um, and it's a, a really good friend of mine, Phil Dickens, um, gave a presentation, I think in 1998, where he kind of photoshopped uh, a factory with some stereolithography machines in it. And, and said additive factory over the and, and people laughed. They honestly laughed and said that will never happen. It's illogical. These are prototyping machines. It's what they're for. And really, it was I suppose a year later, two years later, Siemens or was it Phonak actually said no, no, no. We're going to start making hearing aids by 3D printing. And, and then all of a sudden, Invisalign comes along and says we're going to start making tooling for invisible dental aligners. And, and then Starkey come along and and and, and, and it starts. And it's still moving, and it's still growing, and, and you know the uptake is still there. But I, I still get excited when I see new applications where there's a really credible business case for doing it, where additive has done something that you just couldn't do in your business before. Most of it, yeah, it's just same old, same old. Do you think it takes like uh, these companies have? One of the comments that I heard recently was that it takes we kind of still know who all of the champions are, and that's proof that the, there aren't enough champions, because we know, we know the guys at the aerospace companies, we know the guys at the auto companies, and we know who is doing the 3D printing, and that's probably a bad thing, because we need to know, there needs to be more people doing the 3D printing. Yes and no. I, I love finding out about things that are 3D printed that I never knew about, because the people who've done it are not shouting about it being 3D printed. I wish they'd tell me, though, you know. <laughs> I, was, I was talking to a company the other, last week um, who makes sensors for the agricultural industry. Um, very specialist sensing for subtropical farms. And they only sell a couple of hundred of these things a year. All the housings are made by FDM. And, it's, and I only found out by accident. And they, they said, well, we didn't even think about it. That's just how we make them. Let's tell you about the electronics and the software and the interface and the GUI. And it's like, no, I want to talk about those. And, and they just went, why do you want to talk about the dumb plastic bits? Because that's how they see it. They're just the dumb plastic bits. And I'm sure there are thousands of companies out there who, yeah, they just see it as a, it's basically a digital hammer that forms plastic. 
you know, that's what it is. It's interesting because I would imagine we all do this now. Laura will tell you that whenever she gets on a plane, she finds herself looking at the air, you know, the lockers, things yeah. to see if things are 3D printed. Uh, in fact, I was watching Dragon's Den the other week and I realised that the prototype the guy had had in his hand, I thought, that is 3D printed. So we went and found out about that, but, I just, but that's probably a good sign of the maturity of the industry that uh, I was at Paris Airshow recently and nearly every single stand had something that was 3D printed on it, but it wasn't, hey, this is 3D printed. Mm -hmm. It's just, as you say, the boring part. Um, well, will Laura. that sort of be the turning point then when people stop going on about the fact that it was 3D printed because, you know, we receive every single day so many stories like, it's the world's first this when it's probably not, or it's the fastest this and it's usually not. So will it, will it be a turning point when the 3D printing bit stops being the important part of the story of how that product was made? That'd be a great day, wouldn't it? Yeah. Not for us. I mean, no, we have, have nothing to do. <laughs> but it's... It is just, it's, it's, it's a manufacturing process. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's appropriate for a subset of the things we want to make. And it's inappropriate for a very large subset of things that we'd like to be able to. And, and, and I come back to it, you know, I've, I've looked at so many projects over the years where people have said, here's my inventory, what can I 3D print? And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. where's the problem in the inventory? Don't look for the things you can 3D print. Yeah, look for the things that you need to 3D print because your existing supply chain doesn't work. And, and it's getting that into people. And, and then we will start seeing, oh, look, there's a 3D printed part. I'll give you a great example. I probably shouldn't because I've probably signed an NDA at some point. Um, That's why I, we asked you here for things I know, like this. I know. <laughs> I, I walked around a very large medical device company probably four or five years ago who make scanners. Now, there's five or six companies in the world, so you can guess yourselves and they asked us to go in there and look at what within their supply chain should be printed it's the old what should we print and we walked around three of their factories around the world and one of my guys came running up to me and he went you're not going to believe this said, what come, come look at this and I went over and there were three laser sintered components sitting on the production line waiting to be assembled and, and, and I looked at them and, and Lloyd looked to me and we, that's laser sintered nylon isn't it and, so the guy who paid us to do this, so we went back to, you were already using 3D printing. Are we? Come with us. We showed in the parts. Oh, make some phone. Purchasing didn't know. Engineering didn't know. <laughs> Procurement didn't know. The supplier had swapped them out. And nobody had noticed. And nobody cared. And all of a sudden, the penny dropped. It's like, oh. So there are probably 2,500 CT scanners in the world with three lasers into nylon parts on them. Oh well. It's interesting because there was a, I experienced something similar a few weeks ago and I'm going to try and dance around who it was. Uh, but that was a very similar situation in that it was a tier two supplier who'd made a part for a car that's going on every single one of these particular models of car. Uh, and nobody knew it was being 3D printed. It's not something mm. that they talk about. It's just this part that's that made sense. Yeah. So that's where we're getting to a good, a good understanding of where people and are. And it's not a new thing. I know if you have a, uh, the old Jaguar XK soft top, if you take your soft top mechanism to pieces, you'll find laser sintered nylon parts in there. Because somebody forgot to order the tooling when they made it. So they made them by laser sintering, and then they just kept coming back from production and saying, well, can we have another 500, and another 500, and another 500? It's just how it is. It's proof that it works, though. It's absolutely proof that it works. It's the old make do and mend you know 
don't, don't ask permission, seek forgiveness. Maybe we ought to think of that a bit more as a philosophy. I kind of just want to end on something that is another cliche and it gets talked about a lot is that, oh well, in fact, they're all walking past now. When you see schools and they're seeing they've got 3D printers in their schools, that when they come out of that end, they'll have a better understanding of what the technology is, of what 3D printing technology is, because they've had it in schools, whereas previous generations did not have it in schools. And therefore, these problems around design for additive manufacturing will go away. Do you believe that? No, I genuinely think that the 3D printers in schools are being driven by the wrong people. You know, I, I, I'm lucky enough to be in the industry and have, have had a machine at home and, and gone through my kids' education. We found more value in using a 3D printer to support the biology curriculum the physics curriculum, not the engineering or the science or CDT. You know, it's, it's really useful for doing a human cell and your children will understand how a human cell works when they've 3D printed it and assembled it. They'll understand how a, a volcano erupts when they've printed a volcano and chucked some bicarb in it. You know, that's where the value of it as a technology comes. If you, if you think it's just going to be a solution for them to understand manufacturing, well, if they're not learning about laser cutters, CNC machines, CAM, vacuum forming, injection molding. No. And, and, and this idea that, well, it's just one machine, it can do everything, and we need to design for... De design for, for additive manufacture is exactly what it says. It's designed for the process. It's no different to design for injection molding or design for machining. So I, I'm not skeptical about 3D printing in school. I just, I would love to see more teachers understanding the value of what a printer could do and saying, can I apply that to my, my subject, my part of the curriculum, and, and challenge the way that we do education? Because quite frankly, it's really quite boring. And yep. it's getting worse. It's funny because my wife is a uh, primary school teacher and she was talking the other day about a history class she was doing. And they were talking about an archaeological dig and they didn't have any of the things. And I said, well, why don't you just 3D yeah. print some of the coins? And they, then they could understand what they looked like, and they're all, all the files are available online. Absolutely. It's just, I suppose, getting that understanding of what 3D printing can do for each application. Yeah, and, it's on, and, and, and you made a really good point, it's available online, because it is, there are millions and millions of STL files online, and most of them are open, you know, open source, we can get to them. It's knowing that they're there. You know, we, I, we did a geography project at home with, with my kids, and it was, they had to make a model of America. Well, okay. Do you know you can download an STL file for every state of America in a jigsaw puzzle and put it together? And then just, you know, go on to Thingiverse and type Washington Monument. Okay, print it out now, put it where it goes, and you've got to look. And, and, and just, yeah, just use it for what it is. Laura, do you have anything else? Sandra, do you have anything else? I'm good. Thanks very good. much, Phil. No, it's all right. Phil, that was really good. Thank can you I very carry much. on walking around now? You can carry on walking around. <laughs> we'll let you go. <laughs> See you later. Thank you very Thank much, you. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.